Welcome to Lawyer Up Columbus. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here with my law partner, Jack Dorora. For a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day. With social justice issues dominating the news, our focus became, how do we, as lawyers, make a difference? Jack, one of the many issues today is the uh, critical race theory discussion. And I'm embarrassed to admit that until recently, I had no idea what critical race theory was. Now, remember, and I think you know this, uh, I got my college degree in education, taught fourth grade before law school, and it was never a part of the curriculum that I taught or that I learned. You and I both went through law school and, again, had never heard of critical race theory. When did you first hear of it? Well, first of all, you and I have known each other for 20 years, and I'm hearing for the first time that you taught fourth grade. That's why we get along so well. <laughs> so we're, <laughs> we just don't talk enough, John. I only heard about critical race theory within the last couple of years, and what's kind of sad about that is, if I'm not mistaken, the theory came about some 40 years ago. It was well known in university circles, but it didn't hit the mainstream. Well, Jack, today we have someone with us that knows critical race theory and can help us uh, understand it and, uh, and talk about why it's important today, and that's Joni Acuff. She's an associate professor of art education at The Ohio State University, and she uses critical race theory to develop her curriculum. Welcome, Joni. Hi. Thank you for the invitation. So um, why don't we start with uh, what is critical race theory? Because when I read up on it, it seems like many people have many different interpretations of exactly what that concept is. That's interesting that you call it an interpretation because there's really only one way to think about critical race theory. Like you mentioned, it was developed some 40 years ago in the 70s when a group of lawyers or law students actually were investigating why after um, a couple of decades of injustices, racial injustice in the judicial system kept happening, a group of lawyers, Kimberly Crenshaw was a part of the group of lawyers, law students who did research around, years of research around why racial injustices were People of color were getting higher sentences um, when they had similar offenses to the, their white counterparts. And so um, essentially they came up with this theoretical framework that helps us understand and identify how race is at the very center of all of our institutions that, we, that exist today and how it's baked into the foundations of law, education, even housing, health, health care, varying systems that we engage in today and don't recognize the way that certain groups of people are oppressed within those systems because they are still working within the foundation of racial injustice being at their, at their core. So that's essentially what critical race theory is. Um, you didn't learn what critical race theory was about because that is the norm. I'll just add that to, to the end of that. I was interested in the, um, as a part of this theory, how pervasive the law 
is here, right? I mean, it really is a look at how the law has facilitated racism. And geez, Jack, I mean, how many cases did we study in law school? And again, the concept was never discussed. Well, it certainly was not discussed explicitly, but I remember I had to write a paper for one of my classes, and it was the first encounter I had with the death penalty, and it was a study of the greater likelihood of blacks being sentenced to death, especially if the victim were white. I mean, the numbers were pretty profound, so I saw it right there, so this would have been in the late 80s, but certainly there was no class per se that really studied how race was baked into the system. One of the things that Jack and I uh, talk about um, is um, why it's important today, and I come at it from a more cynical, or I would say political viewpoint, where uh, politicians are using it as a divisive issue to generate support uh, for them. Uh, But Jack had an interesting perspective. The perspective came about Joni because I was listening to this panel discussion hosted by the dispatch. And one of the panel members was Don Jones, who is pushing this bill to prohibit any kind of instruction regarding CRT in schools. And he said with some, for lack of a better phrase, disdain, why are we we studying this now, suggesting that it's not important? And my thought was, why not? Because or the reason we're studying it now, or it's becoming the top of, of conversation, is because only recently have people become comfortable talking about the issue that no one was comfortable talking about 20 years ago, maybe 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So the why are we talking about it has two aspects to it. Just to go off of why now, I think that's actually a misconception. I think we've been engaging in critical race theory work in K-12 for a very long time. I mean, if you think about MLK, that is the quintessential figure that is brought up during Black History Month. You know, he's, he's one of those safe people, you know, but when we think about why he had a dream, you know, we have in our schools have had to talk about why there was segregation or why certain people had access to certain water fountains, right? So in some ways, you know, we've been talking about oppression for a while, but in very specific safe ways. And I think it has become unsafe in that um, we've seen now, for example, George Floyd, his murder on camera brought to light or allowed us to speak more more loudly about those unsafe experiences versus it being couched in history that is often removed from what we go through in a, on a day-to-day basis. So we see like the MLKs, we see the Rosa Parks in our schools as something that happened a while ago versus like this is actually still happening today. And I think that fear of how to identify where history is still present today is a scary thing and has initiated that bill. I think what you're saying is the whole discussion today is a little bit more in your face, here's what's really going on, as opposed to here are these inequities that we're 
that happened in the past. Gee, sorry, we weren't there then, so we can talk about it safely. Right. Well, the way I look at it, too, is, um, and I know anecdotally, uh, I've experienced the structural racism in growing up. I'll give you an example. In 1977, when the Columbus schools were desegregated, I was just entering ninth grade. And I went to uh, Beechcroft High School, which was a brand new school then. I think it might have been the first year it was open. And um, Judge Duncan um, uh, ruled that the schools needed to desegregate because the system in place, the structural system in the Columbus Public Schools, segregated African-Americans and whites. Um, Now, having experienced that, it's now what? (laughs) 40 years later that I understand that this was, you know, this critical race theory explains why that was necessary at the time. Um, And probably if we think about it, Jack, there's example after example of that, that uh, we've experienced what this theory is telling us has been happening. And now I think I'm starting to understand it from an intellectual standpoint that, yeah, that's what's going on. Uh, Joni, I presume that you would say, well, we need to take the next step. It's happened. We now have a theory that describes it that people are understanding. So what do we do now that we all understand it? Well, I'm not sure people actually understand it. <laughs> you know what? I'm right behind you on that one. So don't <laughs> don't hesitate to say that. I, I mean, I think the critical race theory discourse that has been happening in mass media is actually misinformed and being used as a tool for maintaining power in systems that we as a people, and I say a people of color and our allies and accomplices are trying to deconstruct and destabilize. We have more to do to educate people. Yeah. (laughs) I like that. Uh, I like it. Jack had brought this this, um, bill to my attention that the Ohio legislature is trying to get through. And as I read it, I'm I just can't understand why they're spending any time calling this uh, some response to critical race theory. It seems to me it's a disconnected uh, to what this this bill actually says. Yeah, I think this bill is actually a response to white fragility versus it actually being about critical race theory. I mean, there's a lot in the bill, actually. But there's nothing in the bill that I feel can impact our educators in continuing to do the work that they are doing, partly because when we think about whether or not our educators talk about race, I mean, you, John, talked about you not learning about critical race theory. There actually is a small percentage of teachers who actually teach about race very specifically in an explicit way that gets to systemic injustice, systemic racism. So, for example, I teach art education pre-service teachers. In my course, I teach about critical pedagogies, which um, are founded for me the way I approach the class. Critical race theory is at the center. So I teach them about race first, that is a social construction, and then we go through different pedagogies like critical multiculturalism, culturally relevant pedagogy. We go through anti-racist pedagogy. And so about halfway through the class, every single time, every semester since I've been teaching this class, 
all the students, well, not all of them, but I'll say a few of them, and I feel like they represent majority of the class, they say, what happens if we come across a conservative parent? Or what happens, I've never, I've never learned about this in school, and they're in their 20s. So when we think about, you know, what has been happening and what this bill is actually going to stop, there's not much is going to stop anyway, because a lot of the teachers haven't actually been getting into um, systemic. They've been getting into, like MLK, that kind of surface, everyone is equal. We are we are all humans versus, you know, slavery is the bed is the bedrock of the United States. And that push for economic power exists in all of our systems. That doesn't necessarily go along with MLK. You know, (laughs) while, you know, MLK and, and I'm just using, I I love MLK, um, but I'm just using it as an example because that is all my student teachers are able to identify and put a finger on as far as talking about race. And so... I think the bill actually elevates the need for this type, like an educational insurgence at this point to like push more mm-hmm. um, because I, I recently listened to Kimberly Crenshaw actually on a podcast on a panel um, and she talked about less than 10 percent of teachers actually even really talk about race in the classroom. So I don't I don't know how effective this bill will be as far as doing uh, us doing any less. But I feel like it can make us do more, actually, and, you know, build teacher coalitions and people make doing groundwork grassroots movements to try to push up against this well if i'm hearing you correctly you're saying this bill prohibits activities that really don't exist within most classrooms i mean who in k in k-12 do you learn about meritocracy no no well you don't (laughs) um in k-12 do you learn about white guilt and white privilege No. no so that's actually kind of not happening <laughs> but but at the same time it is presenting a deterrent to anybody who wants to venture into those things yes so let's do what most of the people who talk about critical race theory don't do let's actually look at the bill <laughs> it's hard to read this bill because it doesn't make sense and then when you look at it to try to make sense well, I, I think you're right about that. But uh, well, let me give you an example. Okay. You're not allowed, okay, to teach about an individual's moral standing or worth determined by the individual's race or sex. I agree, Joni. Who is doing that and why would any teacher do that? Why put that in here? It's like saying you're not allowed to tell a student to walk to school in the cold without shoes. We don't need that in a bill in our legislature, right? I think that that is the point that we need to recognize that that's not happening. And what is this bill really Mm -hmm. attempting to do? That means it has an ulterior motive that is not actually connected to K-12 education. So what I think we need to dig deep into what it is really a response to. And I think it's it's the larger goal to possibly... I'll say after George Floyd, I feel like a lot of teachers were now interested in these things. And so the the identification of the interest, I think, made this bill come to the forefront. 
because teachers may now want to teach about these specific things. So they're kind of trying to get ahead of the head of what they think might come and the power that they think might they might lose in students actually learning these things in K-12. Yeah, there's there's a provision that if I had to, to say after everything I read, there's only a couple of sentences here that I actually put in this is this critical race theory relative and it and it's again a very strange reading now you know Jack and I deal with a lot of contractual cases and and you you um, in a contract case right Jack it's the letter of the it's the letter of the law it's the contract says you have to enforce so we look at the words very carefully no teacher shall be required by a policy of any state agency to affirm a belief, so the teacher can't be required to affirm a belief in the systemic nature of racism. Now, who's doing that in the first place? Yeah, and who's requiring them to affirm a belief? But I agree, there's there's something underlying this where somebody wants to use this language to their well, benefit. I think it's, uh, let me point you to a couple examples that do that. There's one provision that says you cannot teach that an individual by virtue of the individual's race or sex bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by members of the same race or sex. Another, you can't say white America helped embed racial animus within the various systems. That's what it's saying, I think, and, and that's what's offensive to me. You can't go back and explain history as it as it is. And what's one more perverse aspect about this? So I'm listening to Representative Jones in this panel, and he says, I don't want to teach kids how to think. I want to give them the facts, and I want them to choose. Well, I'm thinking that's a noble attitude. That's all it is. But then he's telling teachers what they can't do. So he's trying to have it both ways. Well, I think what you read, it brought a couple of things to mind. Um, when we think about racism and we think about white people and whiteness, there are two different things. White people and whiteness are two different things. Whiteness is an ideology. It is the idea that White is normal, and mm. everything outside of that is measured against it, right? So when we teach about that, that what you read, it implicates white people versus whiteness as an ideology or the, the establishment of white as the norm. And so I feel like that is a representation of a gross misunderstanding of what uh, critical race theory is about because it's actually implicating humans versus the system, which is whiteness versus like actually actual white people. I mean, if we think about white supremacy, people of any color can enact or operationalize white supremacy because it is situated around an ideology, a belief that white is the norm and it is the standard by which all other humans are measured. So I love that you read that because that just demonstrates a clear misunderstanding of what critical race theory is really about. There's an even better provision. Should I read this better provision sure. to you? <laughs> Here's another thing you're not supposed to teach. With respect to their relationship to American values, slavery and racism or anything other than deviations 
from betrayals of or failures to live up to the authentic founding principles of the United States, which include liberty and equality. I'm thinking, wait a minute. The gents that wrote the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution, many of them were slaveholders. So you can't say that that was a deviation from what they were doing, that there were there were two inc- there were inconsistencies there between their word and their actions. And when we think about the laws that are about equality, we also have to remember that black people were not considered human. And so they weren't even considered in that wording of equality as it relates to humans. I, I keep going back to kind of, uh, Jack, to our training as lawyers and thinking about the, the um, structural racism in the law. And, and there's so many examples that um, now when you think about critical race theory, they jump out to me. For example, uh, if you're picking a jury in, a, in any case, civil or criminal, but mostly in the criminal cases is where the laws developed, you can usually exclude anybody you want as the lawyer. You oftentimes don't even have to give any reason at all. You get these, they call them peremptory challenges. But in a case where lawyers were excluding black people off of a jury and there's a black defendant, the law developed to stop that structural racism and said, if you're going to do that, you have to have an excuse that is neutral. Now, of course, it didn't take long for lawyers to come up with neutral excuses, but the, the, the case law developed to look beyond that and see what was going on. But that was huge because prosecutors no. used that ability to win cases by having a jury not of the person's peers at all. And were dumb enough to make notes about it that later were discovered. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the other example I, I think... Um, of is um, Jack and I both do real estate law and uh, racism in that area is and was prevalent. Um, the, uh, the government uh, was involved in it. They did something called redlining and um, they would not give loans in certain areas of town where poor people live, predominantly uh, black people. And um, it created a, a host of problems. And so the laws developed to, to kind of uh, eliminate those problems. And one of the things, I don't know if you have bought a home uh, lately, Joni, but one of the things that's happening in the real estate world is buyers send a letter to the seller saying, oh, here's a picture of my family. Yeah. We love your house. Mm-hmm. We've got this or this. And lawyers will tell those folks, you got to be very careful because you may be violating the law by uh, this um, bias against a certain protected group. And so I call them love letters. Uh, It won't be long before they're going to be outlawed, I bet. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that, Jack? No, I haven't seen that, but gee, it doesn't surprise me. Mm -hmm. Hey, let's, let's switch the conversation just a little because we, we've been talking about critical race theory in general, but Joni, your focus is helping people see how race comes up in art, mm-hmm. which is, for me, surprising. <laughs> Although I'd like to talk about some movies. Um, Gonzo and I were talking about movies that when I look back, I go, oh my goodness, they really did that. But talk to me about what you see in artwork and, and what you teach your students. Okay, so the way that critical race theory intersects with my work is 
identifying how race plays a part in how we see things. Um, the practice of seeing, the practice of looking. That's at arts, that's at humans, that is the world, our social context. How does race impact our viewing practices? And so race actually is visually mediated. Like we understand race by looking at someone's skin color, identifying them and placing our socialized beliefs upon them that we've been taught to understand through use of mass media, visual culture, et cetera, et cetera. So my job, what I've taken on is making sure my students are have that literacy, have that visual racial literacy is what me and my colleague have kind of coined this phrase, visual racial literacy. And it comes out of... I, I like it. You like that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> visual racial literacy. But, um, you know, it comes out of a scholar... Gunier's work on racial literacy, which is the ability to read and understand racial events when events when race is at the center of them. Right. So we can identify that race is a part of this experience. We can identify that, see that. And it's really important because I feel like and research shows that mostly people of color have developed racial literacy because of they can if they don't it's it could be a life and death situation you know you're thinking about when a cop stops you mm. you're reading that situation you're reading the body language of the person you're practicing critical race theory Kim kimberly crenshaw says when when people of color walk out the door they're actually practicing critical race theory because they have to they're not considered norm. And so you have to exist in a world in a different way outside of your house that may not feel as comfortable to you because you have to, in in some ways, assimilate to what is expected of you as a citizen, right? And that has been defined by whiteness. Going back to my work, uh, we added visual to racial literacy just to emphasize the seeing component, the technologies of looking that have been developed. I love the general language. Give me a specific, or can you actually point to something that we might all have seen and perhaps we didn't see what you're tuned into? Yeah. So, for example, we all take pictures with our phone, our digital cameras. Sometimes we get them printed out. You know, I know it's a digital age now. We just keep albums on online. But, you know, you get printouts from Target or, C, uh, you know, CVS. Many people don't know that the color calibration of developers actually use this thing called a Shirley card. And Shirley cards were developed... 50, 60, some, sometime like that um, by Kodak. And it's a little, little small card that calibrates a photo, the color photos. And it's actually a picture of a white woman and her name was Shirley. And so her skin tone is the base, found, is the foundational color that all other colors on your, on your color digital prints actually turn out to be. So her skin color was the norm. It was the standard. It actually said normal on the Shirley card. And so when you take a picture, even to this day, uh, if you even go in Photoshop, there's a base like you start at one one color and that color is aligned with 
white people's skin tones and you move up or down from there. So that's one example of how, you know, race race is embedded in the way that we see things, even from the pictures that we take on our phones. So white was sort of the is the base from which everything else was contrasted, so to speak. Yeah. All artworks are developed from one's cultural frame of reference, right? So in their experience, their lived experience in a racialized body, whether or not they they acknowledge it's racialized or not. Specifically, you know, white people are norm, right? And mm-hmm. so oftentimes, you know, even in my classes, I might say, you know, t- let's talk about culture. And I think, like, I don't have culture. It's just, you know, we've heard students say, like, I'm just white bread, you know? Um, <laughs> there, That is... You're a racialized body, regardless of whether or not you realize that. And so all of our artworks actually come from that frame of reference, that lens. Well, I can't. It's funny. uh, Before we got on the air today, Gonzo and I were talking. And because you're involved in art, the only thing I could come to was was movies, which I think is art form. Mm -hmm. But I started thinking of the the Disney movie from years back, Dumbo. You ever seen Dumbo? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, there's a scene where these crows are singing. Mm -hmm. And as a kid watching it, I didn't think anything about it. But knowing you were going to be on the show, I thought, I think I need to go back. And when I looked at these crows, I thought, oh, my goodness, I can't believe they portrayed the crows the way they did. Because it's really just this stereotype of black Mm -hmm. that these white producers had. Or the other great one is Inspector Callahan in the Dirty Harry films. I'm not old enough to know what that is. (laughs) (laughs) But I do know Dumbo. (laughs) Well, Inspector Callahan, this is uh, Clint Eastwood. The bottom line is he's a police officer in San Francisco. There must have been more than one movie, but... He must kill in this one scene six folks, six men, all you know, within two minutes, while they're all black, and when I and they're configured a certain way, mm-hmm. and I thought, wow, I didn't really notice twenty years ago when I first saw this the way I'm looking at it now, but I thought, I think this is what Joni's talking about. Yeah, and and tropes. You're talking about tropes um, being developed, which is. A tool for us to immediately identify and understand a person in in a movie. Unfortunately, those tropes actually seep out into how we understand people in in society. But the most impacted by those tropes are people of color because writ large, we see people of color as a group where white people are actually allowed to be individuals. You know, when we point to even things like 9-11. After that, Muslims were all... All bad. All bad. I think not till recently when when you would have a white male do a mass shooting. It was him. He had mental health issues. He had a bad day. It's never the whole race and, and gender of oh. white males are not <laughs> gathered into one group. White people have a bad habit, when we talk about black people, of identifying them by their race. So if I were to say, hey, that's my law partner, Gonzo, but it wouldn't be unusual for a person to say, oh, you know that lawyer Joe, the black guy I introduced you to? Mm -hmm. That's what white people do. Well, that's what everybody does. That's what we've been socialized to do. (laughs) You know, there's an identifier outside of 
who the person is. You know, scholars call it hyphenate, hyphenated identities. Um, I like, haven't heard that before. Yeah, like African-American, Asian-American, Mexican-American. But when we talk about white people, it's just American. It's not white American. Have you ever heard the um, terms uh, white passing? Yes. So um, I was told that I'm white passing because I'm Hispanic, mm. but I obviously am white and older and I look white. And, you know, I, I thought in terms of critical race theory that not just white people, but white passing people have had advantages, too, because as, as you sit here and talking, uh, if you don't talk to me and don't know anything else about me, you're going to make assumptions based on just the color of my skin, right. which in my case are probably going to be advantages for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, when we were thinking about critical race theory, I started thinking about the advantages to white people. We've been talking about the disadvantages to minorities and, and um, black people, but there's been a lot of advantages on the other side of it. And that's, I think, why so many white people are against this theory. They're afraid that they may lose their benefits. That's my theory. (laughs) Um, You know, my brother went to law school. And when I told him that, hey, have you ever considered that the fact that we're white, that we got advantages? And he took offense to that because everything he's done, he's worked for. And I said, look, I'm not trying to tell you that that's not important, but you can't tell me that we didn't have some advantage. And uh, that part of it seems to get stuck, mm-hmm. uh, trying to, to get past that. That makes me think of this video that I show my students. A woman, uh, she's done race work for a long time. Her first name is Jane. I cannot remember her last name. I'm not great with names. Um, but... I show her about a 40 show a 45 minute clip of her and she is in a group in a room full of white people and um, she's white and she says, I want you to stand up if you are OK, if you would walk out of here today and would be OK with being treated the way that people of color have been treated in this country. Stand up. And she was like, I know you maybe you don't hear me stand up. If you think you would be okay with being treated as people of color have been treated in this country and no one stands up. And the point is, while you may not know the language, you may not know what it's called, you know and feel that there is a difference in the way that people of color have been treated and white people have been treated and you don't want it for yourself. You know, so why would you dismiss any any pushback from a population not wanting to be treated like that. And I, and my students, you know, their jaws drop like, that's so true. Like, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to be an academic. You don't have to know critical race theory. You don't have to know the discourse to know and feel that there is a difference. You might not be able to name it, but we have to come to terms with at least acknowledging that, that you, that there's a difference. Otherwise, you're just practicing willful ignorance. Well, I, I agree with you, but I think your comment, Gonzo, hit to the subject that we're, we're grappling to really get our hands on. Because another aspect of what you're talking about with your brother is people say, well, what's that got to do with me? I didn't create the system. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to distance themselves as opposed to saying, well, maybe, nobody wants to say, well, maybe I have responsibility for fixing the system. Mm -hmm. There's that reluctance to do that, so then that begs the question, 
why is there reluctance? Mm -hmm. And maybe that maybe that ties into subconsciously, could I lose out in the deal? Yeah, I don't know, but it's it's you're right. What a great question that woman asked. Mm -hmm. That should be a wake up call. Yeah. Can I jump on that scholar, Isabel Wilkerson? She has a book called Cast. um, And in her book, she talks about inheriting this. Like we inherited a house. The house's foundations are, you know, cracked. It's coming down. The walls are coming down. We inherited it, but we have a responsibility to build it back up. It's that's just like buying an actual house. You weren't just going to leave the house foundation with cracks and you're going to try to rebuild from the bottom up. So it's our responsibility to have hammers and nails in hand and try to build this thing back up. And, and that's all. It's our responsibility, whether or not we wanted or desire to be a part of that at its origin. I remember reading that, um, and and I want to go back to the actual theory of critical race theory for a minute, because there's one part of it, or there's one issue related to it that we haven't touched on, which is race isn't something inherently part of our mental process. Mm -hmm. We don't, we aren't born racist. It's not exactly that we're taught to be racist. It's more significant. It's this whole idea, using your words, Joni, it's baked into a variety of systems. And I just think that's interesting. There are two aspects to it. I suppose the Ku Klux Klan just hated blacks, period, on a personal level. They hated everybody. They hated everybody. (laughs) But, But the real issue is how we have these systemic problems, which are even worse, I suppose. Yeah. We see that in our juries. Uh, all across the state. And, you know, Ohio, you would think that we're, we're all kind of have the same common, um, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, values and morals, you know, uh, uh, across the state. But you get into the smaller counties and you see things that you wouldn't see in the more progressive counties and the larger ones. But unfortunately, we have to deal with what it is because we want our clients to have a fair and unbiased role in the justice system. And I think as lawyers, Jack, we need to understand this theory and start to apply it uh, to help our uh, help our clients. Well, not only apply it, but try to make a little push when we see goofy bills here being pushed by people like Representative Jones. I mean, we should all be contacting our, our representatives, and I think especially us as lawyers who are concerned about how the fabric of society is being woven. Mm-hmm. Joni, we appreciate you coming on and uh, educating us and uh, talking about these issues. I think that we uh, could learn a lot more from you, and I hope that uh, we get a chance to do that in the future. But uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been an engaging conversation. Well, I'm delighted you were with us, too. Hey, we'll be back um, in a couple weeks. We'll be talking about a subject that's been in the news a lot lately, which is the perils and inequities of our bail system. And before we sign off, I want to make sure that we thank Eric, our sound engineer, who's very patient with us every time we come in here, and for Ohio State for allowing us to record at WOSU. So we'll be back in two weeks. Until then, remember to lawyer up. So long.